Welcome to Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. So we've got a big episode today, Shani, mm-hmm. but you have had a bigger week. I have had a big week. So on Wednesday, Shani was featured in the Sydney Morning Herald, mm-hmm. and there was a giant picture of you on the front <laughs> cover of the money section. Which I didn't approve. Which you didn't approve. The photographer showed up at our office on Monday (laughs) and you said that it was a 45 minute shoot. It was 45 minutes. And at the end, he was like, oh, just for a couple of minutes, why don't we go outside? It was very, very hot. It was, I think, 38 degrees that day and it was very windy. Um, And he's like, why don't we go outside just for a couple of minutes? I'll take a couple of shots. And we went outside and they chose a shot where I was like, sweating <laughs> and my hair was blowing yeah so. well you should have been nicer to the photographer <laughs> yeah that was probably and then it. this morning it's thursday this morning you were on ausbiz i was on ausbiz i talked about asset allocation yeah and you did a great job thank you so anyone can go to the ausbiz website go back and look on thursday what's today so today's the 9th of march, march. go back and you can see the recording of shawnee but anyway big episode today mm-hmm because we're going to talk about a topic that, you know, to be fair, no Australians will actually be interested in. Right? I feel like you're being sarcastic. Yeah. We're going to talk about the banks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So Mark is being sarcastic because we know that it's a topic of interest and that the banks play a big role in Australians' portfolios. On January 31st, the big four banks made up 19.52% of the ASX 300. When we include Macquarie, the number jumps to 22.5%. And of course, the entire big four sits in the top 10 holdings of the ASX 300 or 200 or whatever you want to look at. And Macquarie joins them there. So in total, financials make up 28.6% of the index. And a large contributor to this focus on banks by Australian investors has to do with another thing that Aussies love, and that is dividends. Each member of the big four yields over 4%, and last year, all of their dividends were fully franked. So many investors that buy individual shares hold at least one of the banks, and all passive investors have a large exposure to banks. So definitely a topic worth exploring. But it is important to acknowledge that investing in banks is different than investing in other companies. A quick look at their financial statements shows that they are more complicated than most other companies. And banks respond in different ways to the overall economy than other companies. They have different reactions to inflation and rising interest rates, which course, in case you're not paying attention to something going on right now. They also have different reactions to slowing economic conditions and are heavily regulated and the source of a lot of political commentary given the big roles they play in people's lives through their loan books and their use as a mechanism to save and invest money. And we're going to explore all of those topics today, including his top banking picks with our guest today, Nathan Zayar. Nathan is a senior equity research analyst at Morningstar who covers the big four banks along with other financial services companies. Which is a lot of pressure because getting the banks right by either overweighting them if you think they're attractive or ignoring them or underweighting them if you don't will likely make or break your portfolio. Okay, so before we get to Nathan, what is your opinion about the banks, Mark? Well, I I guess I'd like to preface this by saying that, of course, I have exposure to the banks like pretty much every Australian investor, but that that is through ETFs and my super fund, and I actually don't own any of the banks directly. 
And I think the reason for this is just the bad taste left in my mouth from the GFC. So I went into the GFC owning two banks, and these were fairly large positions. So that was Citigroup and Washington Mutual. And I was certainly aware of the risk posed by the US housing market, but the bank said that they had securitized a loan, which basically means packaging and selling them off to investors. So they were off the bank's balance sheets, and I believe the regulators who said they had adequate capital reserves to withstand any housing issues. Um, and I'm guessing that didn't really work out for you. Uh, well, Washington Mutual ceased to exist, <laughs> and City, this share price at least, got crushed. So no, it did not work out too well for me. And I think this made me realize when I, what I talked about before. Banks are extremely complicated and have a history of blowing up. So I'm just a bit gun shy right now and prefer simple businesses. So what about you, Shani? What do you think of the banks? Uh, well, Mark, I actually don't directly own any banks, but I do have passive Aussie equity exposure in my portfolio. And that is something that gives me a lot of exposure to financials and the big banks. And I'm transitioning my portfolio slowly as my financial circumstances change. But part of the reason I don't hold banks directly is shaped by my experience and had a lot to do with my cash flow statement, Mark. And I uh, just wanted to go through this because I think it's important to recognize that not all investors are seeking dividends. Okay, your cash flow statement. So uh -huh. you're using my terminology now, Johnny. <laughs> yeah, Mark. So I had um, a hex debt, as I've mentioned a few times here. But uh, as well as meaning that my take-home pay was cut, it also meant that I had a larger tax bill on any income I earned from investments. And as we know, one of the main attractions with banks are dividends. But back then, income actually set me back because I didn't have the cash flow to pay large tax bills. So a lot of my investments were focused on capital growth with dividends not being unwelcome, but just not my main focus. And now my situation has changed and my thoughts on investing have pivoted, but it still doesn't mean the inclusion of bank stocks directly held in my portfolio. So I try to keep investing as simple as possible. I invest a percentage of my pay across a few funds that give me exposure uh, that I need in my portfolio. And I have five to 10 direct equity holdings that I have high conviction in. And I just haven't found the banks at a compelling enough price yet. Okay. Well, so that's a perfect example, Shani, I think, of how our personal circumstances should influence our portfolio. But speaking of compelling prices, why don't we flip over to our interview with Nathan and he can talk about what he thinks about the banks. So as we discussed in the intro, we have our next guest onto our guest series. So you were actually our third guest. And as we said, we've got Nathan on today. So Nathan covers a lot of companies that people are very interested in, including the big four banks. You've got Macquarie, you've got some insurance companies, QBE, IAG. So yeah, lots of, uh, lots of stuff we can talk about today. But how did you we always ask people sort of, how did you become an analyst? What is sort of the pathway you've taken to get where you are today? Which is a guest on Investing Compass, which is obviously a very big deal. Well, I studied accounting at university uh, post-graduating, started working in accounting and did not really like just sifting through people's uh, invoices and tagging them and that sort of thing. So I found a, a junior role within Morningstar, just entering data as sort of a pathway into the role. Yeah, worked here for almost 10 years, left briefly, worked at Comsec for a little while, and then yeah, came back when the banking and insurance role um, opened up. 
Okay. Well, great. Um, yeah, we're we're happy to have you back. I mean, I know it's been a w- little while, obviously. Yeah, I think three years now. I've been back. As yeah. Well, so. Yeah. Exactly. So this probably comes as no surprise to you, but investors in Australia are pretty interested in the banks. So obviously, you can't speak for every investor, but you know, what are the qualities about the banks that you think make them such a popular investment? Yeah, I, I think one of the big ones, and I wouldn't. I, I don't think it's the strongest reason that people should invest in the banks, but I think dividends, they've you know, got a long history of looking out for retail shareholders in terms of paying out a lot of their earnings as fully frank dividends. So I think that is a big one. Um, I think just their dominant market position, and they have been dominant for such a long time, I think that gives people comfort investing in them, like you know, these banks will be around for a long time and you know they've had government support when things do look tough as well during gfc during COVID, you know we had, they're allowed to defer loans um you know the term funding facility they got very cheap financing available available to them so yeah i think those are the sorts of things that attract people you know we we look at it you know through our lens you know they have a competitive advantage they have very low Funding, they have scale, so they're able to spread their costs. So we think they're quality businesses for those reasons. And I think that's what sort of filters through to, you know, the big earnings numbers we see them generate all the time. I think the other part of it is, you know, institutional investors as well. You know, these are four stocks, make up 20% of the ASEC. So if you're someone that's trying to benchmark to an index, like the default is pretty much to hold them. And then you make a call, do we think they're expensive or? Or cheap, and we buy a little bit more or less. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. it seems like the perfect investment. They pay high dividends, and the government bails them out when, <laughs> when things, things go, go poorly. Wrong. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's uh, that's great. So, on a very simplistic level, and I know there's multiple sources, obviously, but what are the key drivers in terms of how the big four banks make money? Yeah, I, I think the Australian banks a little bit different to some foreign banks as well because of how much does come from the interest income that they generate. So that's basically a money they receive the interest that you're paying on your loan versus what they pay out to people on term deposits or their own bonds. So it's that that difference is their net interest income, and we often reference the net interest margin, which is that income you know, over their loan balances. So that's effectively their revenue. Then you take away all the other costs they have of running their bank, you know, the staff, the branches, compliance, legal. Which have been big fees for them recently, right? Yeah, yeah, and constantly growing, and then bad debts, of course. So, you know, they lend knowing that there will be some customers that fall into distress. So, yeah, that's all taken into account, and then, yeah, hopefully, they're generating a good return for shareholders after all of that. Okay, and we'll definitely get into that in a second. But there's obviously a lot going on right now. We have high inflation. We've had steadily rising interest rates. Can you describe a little bit how, I guess, this environment impacts banks? Yeah, there's there's a few direct impacts. So the first one on credit growth. So you know, as rates go up, people can borrow less because you know those interest repayments are, are rising. And I think there's a little bit less you know, FOMO of missing out of rising house prices. So we do see credit growth slowing. Their net interest margins and the that they should benefit in a higher rate environment, and that's because they do have customer deposits, which 
you know, there's there's some lazy money in there. You know, people put their money in a savings account and then the rate eventually drifts lower and it's still there. And there's also money in transaction accounts. So typically, banks don't pay interest on those. So, yeah, the higher the rate goes, the bigger that spread so they can generate more revenue. And then, yeah, counter, countering all that, you know, bad debts do tend to rise when rates go up because you know, it's harder to meet those mortgage repayments. And especially if things, something does go wrong, like you lose your job or, or fall ill. Um, yeah, so th those are kind of the, the key things that are being impacted by, by rates moving, I think. Okay, because a lot of people say, you know, and it'd be good to get your viewpoint, I guess you kind of already said it, like a lot of people say that, you know, banks are one of the few sectors in the market that actually benefit from those rising interest rates, right? Yeah, well, I think overall that, yeah, it'll be a net positive for the banks. I think what people are worried about is how big is that that impact of bad debts going to be on them? And, and I think the other thing is how much of that margin upside can they keep? Because they have been competing really hard for, for new loans. So, yeah, I think there is you know, some debate as to how much of the upside they're going to keep this time around. But yeah, I think it definitely is is positive for them. Morningstar Investor is built for investors by investors. It provides independent research and data on over 40,000 securities, tools to build and maintain an investment portfolio, and investor education resources to support you, regardless of where you are in your investing journey. Explore opportunities with our monthly global best ideas. Explore our ETF model portfolios, Plan better with two years of dividend forecasts for ASX-listed stocks and stay informed with independent thought leadership. We've built tools to help you construct, monitor and maintain your portfolio, including our Portfolio Manager, integrated with one of Australia's leading portfolio tracking tools, ShareSite. Morningstar has been empowering investor success for over 35 years. We're passionate about your outcomes and are here every step of the way as you achieve them. Take out a free four-week trial to access our resources. Find the details in the episode notes. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about those bad debts. So it's hard to not go a day or two without picking up a newspaper that talks about this mortgage cliff, right? So obviously, we've been hearing that homeowners are already under stress, more and more continuing to reset off of that fixed term. So. Is this a worry? Is it a worry for the banks? We've seen, and I think, you know, as an American, someone who lived in the US during the GFC, I saw the impact of obviously bad debts and what that did to the banks. Are you worried? Should we be worried about the Aussie banks? It's, it's something you need to, to watch. I, I wouldn't say I'm worried about it. I think, you know, they, these are big numbers we're talking about in terms of the, the fixed loans that are rolling out, off. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're that that a large percentage of that group are not going to be able to meet their repayments once they do move to a variable rate, which is much higher. Like if you think about a lot of those people, you know, they had a good deal. They were paying a very low rate. They could use that extra money they had available to save. We saw savings rates go through the roof to spend, like holidays, any discretionary items. A lot of Australian retailers had good sets of results. So there's, you know, a lot of that is simply people are not going to be able to spend on that stuff as much. So 
more money redirected to the loan. What we don't know is okay, of those borrowers that are that we've seen their serviceability buffer pretty much eroded now, how many of them you know, don't have equity or, or a, a big equity buffer, don't have advanced payments, you know, what sort of income level they're on, do they have assets outside of their loan? So there's a lot of variables that would you know, come to make an assessment like, okay, is this borrower potentially going to be at risk or not? But if you look at the last sets of results, and we didn't have many four-year results uh, this time around uh, in, in February, but you know, small increases to collective provisions, the banks themselves highlighting, we think you know, it's a very small percentage of our borrowers that are going to, to you know, find it tough to meet repayments once they move on to the higher rate. So you know, I think they've got a lot more insight and data on their borrowers than we do. So that does give me some comfort as well um, that you know, a large part of their book will be fine. I'm not saying all, um, but yeah, I think that the starting point as well in terms of the equity that has been built up, the advanced savings, um, low unemployment in the country, the starting point is is at least good. And yeah, one of the banks also commented that the fixed loans that have matured so far and rolled over to a lot higher rate, they're not seeing any difference in arrears of those borrowers versus their entire book. So still early days, but so far so good. Yeah, when, when it comes to the US, you're probably more, more of the expert on it uh, than me, but I, th I think one or two differences and again not sure how much it played into what we saw there but full recourse lending in australia so you can't just hand back the keys and keep everything else you have so yeah you've, you've you're all in um and you know there's been a lot of reports around the lending standards in in the states before the subprime lending was a big part and obviously with securitization like the the banks just passing off the obligation to to other people, so they didn't really care what the depth the you know the profile looked like down the road. So I think there are some differences, like, and I do hope that our lending standards in Australia you know, will hopefully prevent the same occurring. Yeah, yeah, and the I think the non recourse thing is interesting because I always tell Australians about this that, and what that basically means is in the U.S. Let's say your house is worth $100,000 and you've got $10 million sitting in your bank account. You can throw the keys on the counter, stop paying your mortgage. The bank will take your house, but they can't touch anything else. Yeah. So obviously the fact that they can go after you in Australia yeah, is a so little bit more of an incentive to, to keep paying your mortgage. So that's the other thing with falling house prices. Everyone worries about, oh, you know, a lot of people are going to have negative equity. I don't think it'll be a lot, but- even those people in negative equity, if they're able to keep repaying and they will try very hard to keep repaying, that, you know, that, that loan's fine as long as they don't fall into arrears. Yeah. The other thing, and we talked about net interest margin. So obviously, as you explained, you go out and borrow money from a depositor or from someone else, you pay a certain amount for money, and then, of course, you try to lend it for more. And the bigger that margin is, the more the banks make. There's been a lot of it's a political backlash that, of course, every time interest rates go up, the banks jack up what they lend it and are very slow. And sometimes they don't pass that on 
to anyone that actually has a deposit with them. Do you think that this is an issue that banks have to manage? Will somebody, other than just complaining, do you think there will be something that will force the banks to perhaps narrow that spread a little bit? I mean, it definitely is something they need to manage. It's something they need to manage from a competitive standpoint anyway. But I mean, the, I think the real risk is, so as, as I touched on earlier, so you know, the, the rates that banks are offering savers now, a new, a new customer, they're fine. They've, I was checking this morning, they've increased you know, proportionally more than what they've lifted their home loan rate, like on an online savings account. That, that there is a bit of um, an issue around you know the bonus offer component of it. So if you take CBA, they'll offer you a four percent rate, but after four months it drops back to one and a half percent. So it is a bit cheeky. So I think that's where the key risk is. If the regulators or government come out and say you can't price like that anymore, you have to you know just set one rate, or you can't have a massive discrepancy between what an old customer's paying and what a new customer's paying. I hope it doesn't come to that where, you know, it gets regulated to that that level and you're basically telling companies, you know, how how their pricing strategies should work. But I mean you can't rule it out. I mean the go- the government can do it. Like they set a price cap on gas, so like it's yeah, it's, it's a possibility it's, at it's, least. Yeah, it it could happen. Um but yeah, I think that's where the real risk for the banks would be. Obviously then how do they try to offset that? Because that will mean pressure on their margins. Do they not compete as hard on loans anymore to try and preserve some of that margin? They could try to just bring down you know, that whole average, so what they're offering a new customer, not be as generous anymore. But then that gets tricky because you know you have some smaller lenders who will try to take advantage of that and and try to win over more and more customers. Yeah, but I think ultimately... If customers are unhappy with what they're being paid, there are lots and lots of options out there, and it, it feels like it's the government just going out there and trying to. And it's kind of doing the homework and the legwork for people in a way, because if if you are relying on those savings, it's not that hard to open another savings account with another bank and move it in. So you can Macquarie, ING, HSBC, Bank Acquaintance, they're all offering pretty attractive uh, rates at the moment, much better than the major banks. So there there are options. That's why I'm not sure we need to go down the route of saying- The government does something about this. Like this is a minimum or this is how you have to price. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think the ACCC reviews earmarked to complete in like a year, so- this isn't going to be a so quick, we've got a while yeah and, and th- they did one on mortgage pricing and nothing really came of it either so yeah we'll, we'll see but yeah it, it if they were to do something it definitely would be a negative for the majors because you know that is a key source of the advantage that they do have they have that that cheap source of funding yeah and so i i think maybe that's a good segue like we obviously talk about moats a lot on this podcast so the big four banks all have wide moats. And I guess they're kind of related, right? Like part of that, of course, is how cheaply they are able to fund their loan books. And the other part is switching costs, which basically means that people don't do stuff if it's a pain to do. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, as you pointed out, don't switch banks. 
And it can be a pain, right? You've set everything up. You've got all your friends in there so you can send them money. You've got all your bill pay stuff. You probably have multiple accounts. So how much does switching costs play into this? And the banks, obviously, the big four banks realize this, yeah. right? They realize that they don't necessarily have to raise those interest rates to get, uh, to get people to stay. Yeah, it's probably lesser of the competitive strengths, I would, I would argue, and especially like with more and more transactions and things done digitally, it's becoming a lot easier to switch. Like, and, and more and more loans are being done through brokers. So if you think about the switching costs, yeah, yeah, the friction's reducing. But I mean, yeah, it still, it still is definitely there. So it does does play into their strengths. Um, yeah, I think so. Term deposits, customers generally will move banks pretty quickly, just chasing the the better rate. Savings rates, they're probably stickier. Transaction accounts is the main one where you know people are it's where their income's going in, they're paying for things, and so yeah. And like you said, if you've got them all linked together, it does make it more convenient. So that's often why you will have. A customer has their main bank where they're doing a lot of their things with it, then they might open an online savings account or a term deposit with multiple other banks. So it just depends. But then you've got people with a loan where savings accounts, are, well, yeah, they're generally meaningless because having an offset account makes a lot more sense. You're getting, uh, your, your home loan is generally at a higher rate than what they'll pay you on a savings rate anyway. Yeah, if not, the banks would be in trouble, right? <laughs> yeah. That would be a negative so I, I, interest margin. I, I hope that's something that um, people realize as well. Not having a loan that they're paying five and a half, six percent of, and they're then saving away in another account that they're earning three and a half percent on. When you can move it into an offset, it, it makes a lot more sense. Okay, well, that's the first piece of guidance: get an there offset account. <laughs> but the other thing people are probably interested in when we look at the banks, what in your coverage, do you think the best opportunity is for investors? Yeah, we, we like uh, Westpac and ANZ out of the major banks. I mean, they're all very similar. They're all, you know, benefit from the same advantages that we spoke about earlier. But yeah, just coming down to valuation, both of those trade at roughly 20% below our fair value estimate. <clears throat> and similar sorts of issues, Westpac's probably had more of issues and the high-profile issues with the breaches of money laundering. But then even during COVID, you know, they had offshore loan processing, which pretty much shut down. Um, they've had a lot of manual processes. Uh, the ASIC put a lot of pressure on them around lending standards. They, they basically used uh, Westpac as the, the test case. So they've had a lot of issues that have made it harder for them to process loans as quick as competitors. So yeah, that that really hurt them and they had been losing share uh, over the last couple of years. And we think the bank has gotten on top of most of those issues now. Like they they're growing again, a little bit slower than the market, but yeah, all, all they need to do is be able to grow in line with the market and I think the earnings will come through and they should get re-rated higher. So that's why yeah, they're, they're our top picks just because more, more of the operational issues they've had we think can be resolved and you know, they should come out of the sin bin. 
All right. Great. Well, there you go. So thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks this, for having me. Yeah, this will obviously be a very popular episode since banks are very popular. But anyway, it was great to have Nathan on. And thank you, everyone, for listening. As always, my email address is in the show notes. If you have any questions, comments, or episode requests, and of course, we would love any comments or ratings in your podcast app. Thank you very much. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.